The sermon text this morning is Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 827. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to his tenants, to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The grass withers, the flower fades. Please pray with me. Well, Father, now um, we believe together that what the Father in this parable says is also the intention of your heart. They will respect my son. And so we ask that your spirit would work in every heart you've assembled here to lead us to honoring and celebrating the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the son of God and savior of sinners, as the Lord and giver of life as the rightful owner of all that is. It's the one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. We pray, Father, for you to strengthen your children this morning from the vision of Christ in this passage, and we ask that you would also act as savingly in the lives of the non-Christians who are here, that you would make this the day of their salvation, Father, that the seriousness of sin and the marvel of your grace in Jesus Christ and the, the real peril of judgment by Christ, that these things would be not abstractions for them, but that by your grace and your mercy, you would pursue them, uh, pursue their hearts and bring their hearts captive under the lordship of Christ this morning. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
hey, do you believe that it's possible for a character in a story to not know the story he's in? To not understand the story he's in? You ever thought about that? I mean, isn't that true about the best stories? Of course, I'm thinking immediately of the Lord of the Rings, right? But, but it, you don't have to only think about the Lord of the Rings, although that might be health, healthy for you. But honestly, all the good stories, in all the good stories, uh, one of the standard patterns is that the that characters in the story don't fully understand the story they're in. And one of the things we enjoy, it, this is true in movies and in books, is the process of the character's discovery of the true meaning of the story that he or she is in. You you know, it's possible for a character in a story to be inside the story and outside the story at the same time. And we watch and we enjoy stories where, through the events that the author or director has put together, where this character who's inside the story, at least technically, but not really inside of it because he or she doesn't understand it, is brought all the way inside the story. And you know, that's exactly why Jesus tells the parable here. Uh, Because his design is to, uh, he, he knows he's addressing people who are in a particular story and who don't understand the story that they're in. And his desire is to bring them all the way inside the story so that they actually understand the meaning of their lives. And of course, as Jesus, at least in the original context, is addressing the chief priests and the Pharisees, that's what he's doing in the original context. But friends, make no mistake, as we overhear him addressing the chief priests and the Pharisees about the story that they're in, he is also, we're also meant to hear him addressing us about the story that we're in. Because, you know, the story that the chief priests and the Pharisees are being taught about and the story of our world and our stories are exactly the same story, the story of this parable. And so this morning what I want to do with you is think about what the, what the parameters of that story is. Because we're in a story. The universe is not an accident. Let me just make that very clear from the beginning. The universe is going somewhere. It started somewhere, and it's going somewhere. There's a plot. And we're going to see from this parable that the world's story and your story are the same story that are being lived out at the intersection of three realities, the scandal of our sin, the marvel of God's grace, and the peril of Christ's judgment. Those are the three pillar elements of your life, whether you realize it or not. And I pray that by God's grace today, you'll not only realize it, but you'll yield your whole heart to uh, the Lord Jesus. So let's think first about the scandal of our sin. This is a very interesting parable because Jesus is describing the relationship between a landowner and some tenants, and it it's it starts really well. It starts much better than it ends, doesn't it? And it's, it's in this story, there's an escalating conflict between the tenants and the landowner. Think about how remarkable this landowner is. I mean, he's really remarkable. Um, oh, and by the way, 
There's no doubt in our minds, by the way, in this conflict between the landowner and the tenants, who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Nobody here is confused about who's in the wrong in this story. It's very obvious. Think about the landlord or the landowner for a second. He's really remarkable. Um, he, he's remarkable for his generosity. I mean, long before he ever, and his creativity and his energy and his wisdom, long before he ever leases this land to the tenants, notice he takes this raw land and he develops it. Look at verse 33. Look at all the things he does. He's a master of a house, right? He's the landowner. And what does he do? He, he, the picture is he comes onto some undeveloped land and he plants a vineyard. So he's thinking about the future. He's subduing the earth, right, and thinking about the future. And he puts a fence around it, and he digs a wine press in it. So he has a vision for the land, and he builds a tower. And, you know, before he ever leases it to the tenants, I want you to see this, he pours himself into it. And he has a vision for the land. Before he ever leases it to the tenants, he sets boundaries for the proper use of the land. So when the tenants step onto this land, when they enter into the lease with him, they are stepping in to and benefiting from all of his wisdom, all of his skill, all of his creativity from the very first step. They, they step into a planted vineyard, a protected vineyard, one that's ready to produce. And they step into not just the benefits of the owner's generosity and wisdom, but they also necessarily, and it's very important to see this, step into the boundaries of his vision for the property. Do you notice what the owner does not do? He doesn't say to them, hey, I've got this undeveloped land. Do with it whatever you want. I'm just giving you a blank slate. Do you see that's not what he does? He gives them a vineyard. He does not give them the freedom to turn it into a brick factory. It's a vineyard. And he expects, rightfully, that the tenants are subordinate to his vision for the land. And that he will receive the fruit that is his rightful due from the land. But you notice now, how the tenants respond to that. They're, if he's remarkable, if the landowner's remarkable for his generosity, they're remarkable for their hostility. Because immediately, they resist the boundaries. Immediately, they, they uh, go against the grain of the vision. And they prove themselves to be liars and thieves. Thieves, I guess thief's not a word. And murderers willing to do whatever they can to steal and to misappropriate the vineyard for themselves. Now, you know what? When we hear this parable, when we actually slow down long enough to actually pay attention to the details, we're outraged. Were you not outraged? Were you not scandalized by this story? I mean, think about it. If you were the owner, put yourself in the owner's shoes in this story. Don't you just raise your fist in outrage? Wouldn't you immediately go hire a lawyer? You're not going to sit there and say, oh, it's totally okay. You don't have to give me my rent, and you can do whatever you want with the land. It doesn't matter that you don't follow the vision that I gave. 
No, you wouldn't say that. Your sense of justice is outraged. You're scandalized, just the, the same way that mine is. If you were the owner, if, we, if this were real life and we were the owner, we would not sit idly by. We would pursue our claim. And if this were real life, friends, and you and I were the judge or the jury when the owner brought his claim, it would be an open and shut case, the the most black and white dispute we've ever seen, verdict rendered for the landowner, no question, eject them from the land. But you know what, friends? This is real life. This is real life. That's not a hypothetical And the testimony of our hearts, the outrage that our hearts, when when our hearts respond to this story and say, that's not right, that's wrong, that's wrong because that's not their property, their tenants, they don't get to deny him his rights, they don't get to use the vineyard and all the fruit uh, of his creativity and his wisdom, they don't get to misappropriate and steal those things, that's not right. Friends, when our hearts When our hearts say that and feel that, you know what? We're testifying against ourselves. Because we are the tenants. And God is the owner. And we are not our own. Friends, everything that you see, everything you use, everything you have, everything you need, is not yours. It looks like your life is yours, but it's not. It's his. It looked like the vineyard belonged to the tenants because the owner went away. It looks like you're all by yourself. It looks to the naked eye like your life is yours. But it's not. Friends, when Jesus is telling us this parable, he's narrating our biography. And notice, I said biography singular. Because despite all the differences between us, we share one biography. And let me tell you what it is. Romans 3.22. For there is no distinction... We talked about this in the new members class. For there is no distinction. No distinction between people. Despite all the distinctions that we labor all our lives to put between us and other people. From God's perspective, in the most important sense, there is no distinction among people. We all functionally have the same biography in God's eyes. And what is that biography? Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're the tenants. We don't own a single thing. We don't even own ourselves. And yet, just like the tenants, we knowingly and intentionally resist the true owner's rightful claims over our lives. Our conscience testifies. Our conscience testifies against us. We know we're not alone. And we know that we are not our own. The living God, my friends, is the one and the only one with the right to tell us how to live. If you think that sin is some kind of abstraction, uh, you haven't haven't reckoned with what the Bible has to say about it. Sin is about an ownership dispute. 
and we are wrongfully embezzling what rightfully belongs to God. You know, you know, there's a difference. This is one of the things I loved about law schools. You learned all this vocabulary that covered all these shades of difference. And I remember in criminal law, when we got to theft, okay, you think, okay, I only, we only need to talk about theft, but there's all kinds of different theft. And embezzlement is a kind of theft. It's a particular kind of theft. It's different from armed robbery. If I go to the 7-Eleven with a gun and try to bump the store off, it's very obvious what I'm doing. Armed robbery, right? That's a kind of theft. But you know what embezzlement is? Embezzlement is when you're in a position of trust. And without a weapon, you from the inside steal what's not rightfully yours. And that's what we are. We're embezzlers. We're deceitful betrayers. And that's the scandal of our sin, my friends. God is the rightful owner of everything we have and everything we use. There's no place you or I will ever go that doesn't belong to him. There's no ability or capacity or opportunity that we will ever have or enjoy that is not his. We are not self-made. We are God-made. And because we are God-made, we are God-owned. And he is entitled rightfully to the choicest portions of our lives. He's entitled to our highest fascination, our deepest loyalty, our greatest joy, our highest sacrifices. He is rightfully entitled to those things, friends, and we say no. We say no. We think God exists to serve us. It's a scandal, and our hearts know it. Which makes the second reality that Jesus shows us in this parable about our stories all the more breathtaking because our sin is a scandal we are we we take what belongs to God and we embezzle it from him and we misappropriate we act like it's ours like we're free to do whatever we want do you know why you have a human life friends to worship God that's why you exist that's why God causes your heart to beat every single day. You don't, you've never once in your life decided to make your heart beat. Not once. And you're alive only because God sustains you. And he sustains you so that your life will return the fruit of love to him. And we withhold it. We're bored by him. We, we're just not that interested in him. We want to keep him at a distance. We want, to, we want to engage in superstitious religiosity that's external, but while we hold our hearts from him. And that makes the wonder of what comes out of God's heart in response to the scandal of our sin just even more amazing. Because we are nowhere near done being scandalized by this parable, friends, because look at how the owner responds to these tenants think about what Jesus is showing us about this owner. It's absolutely staggering. The owner's response to the rebellion of these tenants is, is perhaps more outrageous than their, than their rebellion. And it's meant, I think, to shock our consciences awake into wonder. What Jesus is, is telling us about is the marvel of God's grace. And the key to understanding what Jesus tells us uh, about, uh, about God's grace lies in how we resolve a, a central problem in this parable. And friends, how you understand God's grace is going to be completely determined by what you do with this one fact, how you understand this one aspect of, the, of this parable. You know what the biggest problem 
in this parable is? You've got to decide whether when the, when the landowner, the father, when he sends his son to the tenants, remember, it's the, it's the third wave. The son is the third wave. So they've already proven themselves uh, liars by not uh, sending him the fruit. So he has to send the first wave of servants to get the fruit. And they mistreat the first wave of servants, right? Wave one. And they kill one of the servants. So then what does he do? He sends wave two. He doesn't send SEAL Team 6. He sends wave two. More servants than the first, and they treat them exactly the same. There's a lot of data about what the tenants are like. Their intentions are clear. Their violent potential is clear. And then the third wave is the owner sends his son all by himself. The one with the greatest rights comes in the greatest vulnerability. And you and I have to decide, is the father sending of his son the height of his madness? Or the height of his goodness? That's the issue. And depending on which one of those you choose, everything in the rest of the parable either won't make sense at all or it will make perfect sense in the gospel. Look at this, Father, a little more closely with me. Think about the sequence of events in the parable. The tenants reject the owner's rightful claims. They reject harm and kill two sets of servants. And at the end of that, the father makes this absolutely staggering decision, I'm going to send my son. Now just think about that. Think about the logic. Just don't rush by this. Jesus means for us to be shocked by the logic of this father's heart. Shocked into love. Shocked into amazed wonder. Because what this father does, what this owner does, think about it. The worse the tenants show themselves to be, the better the owner shows himself to be. The more the tenants withhold from the owner, the more the owner gives the greater their hostility toward the owner, the greater his generosity toward them. The more that they refuse to surrender to him, the more he is willing to surrender for them. Right? Do you see that? Now that's an amazing, amazing heart. And friends, there's another layer that ought to amaze us, which is that the son, who knows just as much as the father does, is willing to go and to be sent. Now, if the owner's decision to send his son isn't stunning enough, then there's what the owner says when he sends his son. In verse 37. Look at the whole length of verse 37. Finally, you know, what's the, what's the culmination that word finally is so important. What's the culmination of the father's response to rebellion? It is to send to the tenants the most valuable thing the father has, which is his son. And then when he does, he narrates what his intention is. 
they will respect my son. Now here again, you have to make a very important decision. Is the father nuts? Is he naive? I mean, you you basically only have two options. Does he say that as as the fruit of his naivete? I mean, is he just, is he closing his eyes to the reality of the tenants? He's either, either he's saying this when he sends his son out of his naivete, or what if naivete is not the only option? What if there's another option? What if the father is saying this not out of naivete, but out of the greatest sovereignty? What if he knows something that we don't know yet? Well, at least within the parable, it looks like it's naivete, right? Because as soon as the son shows up, the tenants know he's the heir, presumably by the way he's dressed. And they say, yeah, isn't, it, isn't it interesting? I mean, just think about this. Let me step out of the parable for a minute. Well, actually, let me stay in the parable for a second and then step out of it. In the parable, notice something. That the son reveals their sin at its worst, right? When the sun comes, their rebellion is at its worst. The, the, the approach and the coming of the sun is what draws the worst of their sin out because now they're not content merely to deny the owner the fruit that is his rightful due. Now they want to take, now they want to own the whole thing. Friends, the coming of the son of God into the world This is why people don't like the cross, because the cross is the clearest demonstration of the sinfulness of men and the clearest confrontation by God of men about our sin. So we want to keep the cross as as kind of sanitized jewelry, very small, but we don't really want to think about what it says about the seriousness of our sin. And it's the coming of the Son of God into the world, the light, that reveals the darkness of men most clearly. When you look at that cross, what you have to be seeing uh, at a minimum is the reality of the sin of men and its true gravity because nothing less, nothing less than the crucifixion of the Son of God and no one less than the Son of God incarnate uh, was sufficient as God's answer for man's sin. And so it looks like the bad guys have won in this parable. Let's go back into the parable now. It looks like the tenants have, it looks like the tenants have won. As far as we can tell, it looks like the father's resolve was just naivete. It looks like his son was a kamikaze who was willing to go on a suicide mission. It looks like the son's inheritance has been defeated. And we know that's not the right ending. We know, once again, that cannot be the way this turns out. That's wrong. Right? We know that. We don't want this to be right. The way this story should end is that when the sun comes, and we all know this to be the case, don't we? Oh, it's the testimony of your hearts. I'm absolutely confident of that. You know this is wrong. And you know that what should happen is that when the sun comes, when he comes, what should happen, that kindness of God, or the kindness of the Father, The son's coming is the ultimate measure of both the father's kindness and the seriousness of his purpose because there's an opportunity now for repentance. 
He doesn't send an army. He sends his solitary son. And when he does that, friends, when he does that, what should happen is that the tenants yield. They surrender. But the way the parable is told, the father surrenders his son to certain death and the, and the son surrenders himself to certain death. And that doesn't seem right to us that the father would send and the son would go to their certain death. That does it. If that's the end of the story, I mean, the parable, that's how the parable ends. It looks like the bad guys win. But you know something? Jesus makes it very clear that this is not how the story ends, that, that the parable is not. You know, let me back up for a second. It's not hard to see. This is a very transparent parable, isn't it? We know Jesus is talking about his own ministry. Is talking about himself. He's the son, right? And Israel, but not just Israel, all of us, among whom there is no distinction in God's eyes, all of us have done the same thing. We've embezzled what is God's and withheld it from him. And Jesus is talking about himself as the one sent by his father to rebels, to those who are hardened in rebellion against the rightful, against the rightful landowner. And he comes in vulnerability. And this is, this is after his entrance into Jerusalem. So in a matter of days, he is going to be killed. He's going to be thrown out of his vineyard, as it were, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And he's going to die on a Roman cross. But Jesus wants to make very sure that, that his original hearers and that we understand that that's not the end of his story. That the parable itself is not complete as his autobiography. And that's why... That's why he follows the parable up with this exchange between the chief priests and the scribes. And two interesting things happen. He puts two very interesting things on the table to show us that this parable is not his full autobiography and that the tenants are not going to win. The first clue is in verse 42 when he quotes, he says to the chief priests and scribes, notice how he's gotten them to admit, even his opponents, you see, this is why I know that in each of your hearts, you know that this is wrong, right? He says to them, okay, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do? And these are people who never agree with Jesus about anything. And look at what they say in verse 41. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. But then Jesus doesn't just say, well said. Notice what he does in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? See, he doesn't, he doesn't even tell them that they got it right. He goes on to quote Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And look at what the scripture says. Look at the picture. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you see the picture that he is, he's saying, haven't you ever read Psalm 118? I mean, when I came into Jerusalem uh, just the other day, the crowds were saying Hosanna in the highest. They were quoting Psalm 118. And then when I was in the temple and the little kids were following me around, they were crying out the same thing. They were quoting Psalm 118. I wonder if you, the chief priests and the Pharisees, I wonder if you've read the rest of Psalm 118. Because in the rest of Psalm 118, there's particularly two verses that, that tell the story of a stone 
that the builders reject. In other words, the people who are supposed to be the experts, they look at this stone and they say, it's worthless. We can't even use it. We're going to throw it out. We're going to reject it. But somehow, that stone that men rejected, become, that the builders rejected, the people who ought to know better, that stone becomes the cornerstone. In other words, somehow their rejection of the stone is not final. And in fact, that stone is vindicated not just as part of whatever is being built, but as the preeminent part of what's being built. Now, what explains that? That's the second half of what Jesus quotes. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, he's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. He's the stone who has come, who is going to be rejected in his crucifixion. He's going to be thrown out of the vineyard. He's going to be killed. But God is going to, and that's the wrong verdict, by the way. Right? That's wrong. That's not the right ending. He's the most precious stone, but men don't recognize it. Now, what strict justice would require at that point, at least as men, at least as far as the, the, the rejectors is concerned, is that they lose out altogether. And what should happen with respect to the rejected stone is that somehow the stone would be vindicated And that's exactly what Jesus says is going to happen here. You're going to kill me. I'm going to die. You're going to render an erroneous verdict on me. You're going to crucify me in a way that is going to make it look like I am worthless when in fact I am the most precious, valuable, essential person who has ever lived. But God in his grace is not going to let your erroneous verdict stand. He's going to overturn your false verdict against me and he's going to raise me from the dead. will be the Lord's doing and it will be marvelous you see God is going to vindicate his son in the resurrection and the second clue my friends that this parable is not the full autobiography of Jesus is actually found in the parable itself look at verse 40 something very interesting happens there You see where it says in verse 40 in the ESV, it says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? And that's what it says in the NAS. And I think that's what it says in the NIV. What's interesting is to to ask the question or to notice that that's not how the landowner is described in verse 33. In verse 33, a totally different word is used, right? Right? a master of a house. That's all one word in Greek, and it's a different word in Greek from verse uh, 40 that's translated as owner. Do you know what the word is in the original that's translated as owner? Lord, kurios. So the way that verse reads literally that Jesus is saying, he's saying it this way, when therefore the Lord of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now that raises an obvious question, who is the Lord of the vineyard? Now, you might think that it's the landowner from verse 33. And if we didn't have Jesus quoting Psalm 118, I might agree with you. But what Jesus is saying, friends, is that with that Psalm 118 quote, where God reverses the erroneous verdict of men, 
What Jesus is saying is, my inheritance is not going to be defeated. I'm the son. And my inheritance is not going to be defeated by my death. In fact, I'm going to come into my inheritance by my death. And I am going to return to the vineyard as its true Lord. And I will pass through death on my way to do it. You see, nothing that happens in Jerusalem in Holy Week is a surprise to Jesus. And nothing that happens to him is a defeat. Now, where this leads us, friends, is to our third point. The peril of Christ's judgment. Now, this isn't the point I want to end the sermon on. And I thought for a long time this week, maybe I could make this the second point and you know, so I could end on a positive note about the marvel of God's grace that God, I mean, if you think about what Jesus is describing when you add in his commentary after the parable, what Jesus is describing is that God continues to give his son. He gives his son into the world first, and he gives him into the world to be crucified. And once the world has rejected his son, God doesn't wipe his hands clean of the world. He says, I'm going to give I'm going to give my son back to you in resurrection. I'm not going to let your false verdict stand. Uh, first off, I'm not going to let your false verdict about me and my worth stand. I'm going to send my son into the world to redeem you from your sin. And then when you've crucified him, I'm going to give him back to you again in the power of his resurrection. God's so gracious to rebels. But you know... As much as I wanted to end the sermon on a note of God's grace, that's not the way Jesus ends the passage, is it? Jesus ends his parable and his commentary on the note of judgment. And the parable that he tells us and his explanation of it have now equipped us to understand the story that we're all living inside of. And in that story, the peril of Christ's judgment is real. I wonder if you feel that this morning, my friends. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ do not end the peril of judgment. If anything, they intensify it. And let me explain what I mean. Jesus has a very high view of himself. Very high view of himself in this passage. Look at verses 43 and 44. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You see what he's doing in verse 43? He's looking at the chief priests and the scribes who are going to reject him, and, he's, and he is announcing God's judgment upon them. What's the standard of judgment? Look at verse 44. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Well, who's the stone? Jesus is the stone. So you see what Jesus is doing. Not only is he pronouncing judgment, but he is holding himself out as the standard of judgment. So the judgment that will befall them, he is the standard of that judgment. Whatever their response is to him will determine uh, their judgment, the judgment that they will endure. And notice, there are only two alternatives. Either you fall on the stone and are broken and so can be healed, or the stone falls on you and you're crushed. See, no one can ever encounter Jesus Christ and not be changed. 
Now, friends, those are the same two alternatives that are before us, every single one of us in this room this morning. Those are the only two options. Either be broken into surrender to Jesus Christ by his surrender of himself to judgment for you. I mean, look at this cross, my friends. Either be broken into submission to him in repentance of faith by his willingness to surrender himself to bear the judgment you deserved in your behalf. Either surrender to him because of that or the second alternative, looking at the same cross, is to recognize that if you turn away from the cross, you are turning into the judgment of God and you will be left to bear it yourself. But make no mistake about it, the cross of Jesus Christ assures you and should with fear and trembling assure you that the judgment of God is not some fantasy, that your sins are not hypothetical, they're actual. The holiness of God and your sins are on a collision course. And either you are broken into surrendering to Jesus Christ by his surrender for you at Calvary, or you will be crushed by the reality of that collision between your sins and the holiness of God. Friends, I'm burdened personally by this passage. I'm burdened personally by the seriousness of Jesus Christ. I'm burdened personally just as a Christian. I've been a Christian now for a good part of 33 years And when I listen to this parable and I listen to our Lord, I'm absolutely staggered by how much irreverence is in my life. How casually I use his name. How lighthearted I am about sin. How hard it is, way too often, for joy to come out of my heart over the wonder of the gospel. To look at this table and not just be uncontrollably joyful. It's way too easy for me to do that, and I'm burdened pastorally for you as well. I'm burdened. I want to tell you the truth about him. Of course I want you all to like me. But what I care about much more is that you love Jesus, the Jesus who actually is. And friends, I don't want you to be surprised Let's remember who he is. He's the Lord of the vineyard who has already come. He's the Lord of the vineyard who has already come in humility. He's the Lord of the vineyard who had the greatest rights. And he came as the greatest servant on the earth to surrender himself. He could have rightfully called for our immediate surrender, and he didn't. He surrendered himself. He was willingly sent by the Father. And he willingly went himself to his death as the bearer's as the bearer of God's judgment against our sin. And then the Father sent him back, and he willingly came back to present himself in the power of his resurrection. And guess what? Since the day of Jesus' resurrection, there's an age of mercy that God has opened up by Jesus Christ that we are still under the covering of. 
We are being bathed in the mercy of God this morning. The wonder that we have sinned and God's Son has suffered and God is offering us amnesty and pardon and reconciliation and membership in his kingdom. And that age of mercy is opened up by Jesus who is the Lord of the vineyard who has already come, but he's also the Lord of the vineyard who's coming again. That mercy, that opportunity to surrender will one day be gone. One day be gone. And you know, we need to reckon with that. One day Jesus is going to return or we're going to face him in our death. You know, the, there are limits to God's mercy. I need to tell you that, and you need to believe it. There are limits to God's mercy. Don't assume that God's mercy is unlimited. I know that offends some of you, but friends, think about it. You, you put limits on the mercy of God. You say, I hear the news of the gospel, some of you, and I'm not going to let that mercy change my life. I'm not going to yield. So friends, if you can put limits on the mercy of God, what makes you think that the merciful one himself wouldn't ever or couldn't ever put limits on his mercy? There are limits to the mercy of God. And we meet and we we reach that limit and we cross it at one of three times. We cross it at the return of Jesus Christ because when he returns, when the Lord of the vineyard comes back, there will be no time for surrender. We cross that line when we die. It will be too late to surrender. We can also cross it in our lives. I wonder if you believe that. I hope you read the book of Hebrews. Because it is possible in life, before the return of Christ, before our death, to cross a line through our persistent refusal to embrace the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And at some point, and we don't know where the line is, we can't identify where it is or when we cross it, but God has told us very clearly in his word that there is a line that is possible to cross in this life beyond which it becomes impossible to repent. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. You don't need to know where that line is. I don't need to know where it is. We just need to know that it is. And so, friends, I want to ask you to think. Think very hard about how patient God has been with you. How many messengers and servants God has sent into your life. I mean, our situation is far more serious than the situation of the tenants, isn't it? God has sent far more messengers into our lives with far better news, seeking us, pleading with us, telling us about sin, the righteousness of God, and the judgment to come. God has saturated our lives with the news of his gospel. He sent parents into our lives, covenant children. He sent Christians into our lives, friends and family members. He sent elders and deacons into our lives and Sunday school teachers and, yes, even pastors into our lives. They are the servants of Jesus Christ who come, who are sent to let you know the truth about the Master. And what fruit has that grace of God borne in your life? I I, I plead with you to think about it. 
What fruit have the lavish graces of God borne in your life, friends? How many times can you even count how many times you have heard the gospel? I can't. And what have all those hearings produced? Fondness for Jesus? Interest in Jesus? Curiosity about him? Those are just disguises for hardness toward him. Friends, I plead with you. The lesson of this parable is the lesson that I urge upon you, and it is urgency. Urgency in responding to the gospel of grace in this, in this age of mercy. An age of mercy that Jesus Christ has died and risen again in order to open for you. He's the Lord of the vineyard. He's the Son whom everyone will respect one day. Every knee is going to bow, including yours. And every tongue is going to confess, including yours, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And friends, while the age of mercy is open, come in. Jesus' parable is closed, but your life, while you're still alive, is open. So today, today, as long as it is still called today, if you hear his voice, friends, do not, I beg of you, harden your hearts. Come in to the Lord of the vineyard. Let me pray for you. Us. Oh Lord, we confess there is a frivolity that survives in us. There is a casualness. Eternity feels distant to us so easily and the things of the world grip our hearts. Oh, help us. Have mercy upon us. Help us to taste the sweetness of your mercy. We thank you for your willingness to give us yourself even after you've given yourself for us. And we pray in your name. Amen.